and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Philip Hackney, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. We will discuss his draft article, Dark Democracy, Section 501c4 Social Welfare Organizations and Tax Exemption. So welcome to the show, Phil. Thanks, Brian. Glad to be here. Yeah, no, it's great to have you on. Uh, I'm really looking forward to talk about this paper. It's kind of timely being that we're in the election season now, and a lot of these organizations are politically oriented or motivated in in one way or another. But before we start digging into the kind of organizations themselves and the tax policy questions you address in the paper, um, I wonder if you could start by talking a little bit about the normative theories of political justice that you consider in the opening of your paper, because I think they provide a nice framing for kind of thinking about why we might be concerned about certain forms of tax exemption and sort of inform the decisions uh, we might consider making about how to address those concerns. Yeah, sure. Um, so um, there are lots of different uh, uh, theories on uh justice. And so um, this will necessarily be uh, short. Um, but the, the primary thing that I try and focus upon is that I think, at least in our tax literature, um, most people are thinking about maximizing what they refer to as a social welfare function. This is kind of a best results theory might be the best way to, to describe that. And that is, um, a you have a politically just system if you're getting good results for your society. Everybody is being treated in the best way um, in a uh, kind of a way to uh, sort of popularly think about this um, might be to think about, uh, say, um, Medicare for all is absolutely essential because th this is a best results. We'll get best results if we go with Medicare for all. Um, and many people try and maximize that social welfare function, which is very economically oriented and often utilitarian oriented. Um, I am thinking more in terms of a social choice function, and that also, for those who are familiar with it, might be an unuseful way to describe it, but I'll just go with it. Um, social choice function is maximizing the amount of individuals who have a political voice and say and what we as a group are going to do with our country. Um, so in other words, uh, if one person is deciding for us how we what actions we should take in the country, one person decided we should do Medicare for all, and they were the only person that got to decide that, this would violate uh, maximizing social choice. Um, but if everyone gets to decide what we're going to do, everyone gets a vote uh, as to whether we do Medicare for all or not, now we would be maximizing social choice. Um, now, under this idea, it, it basically a popular will theory, in the nature of a popular will theory, and in the nature of democracy as justice. Um, if we, as a group, decided that uh, Medicare for all was not what we wanted, um, even though there are many people who might think that's the best results, I would be, I would argue that in fact uh, that was just in making that choice, even if it did not. Uh, accord with some of the group's uh, thoughts regarding that. Um, I've talked on probably a little bit more than I should, but uh, if, if you have a question regarding that, if you think I've explained enough in terms of where you're going, let me know. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, would it, do you think it would be fair to talk about the distinction that you're drawing as sort of being one that a distinction between one that values outcomes versus one that values process and that we might think about some of these problems differently depending on, you know, sort of what we think is the most important value within a democratic system? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's outcomes versus process primarily. Um, although there are some aspects about the process um, that must be present um, in any democratic order, um, that uh, if we don't have those particular things, um, we have a problem. Um, and, you know, you, you can see that uh, today um, with states that uh, work to eliminate the right to vote to certain individuals. Um, I think that's a, an outcome that's problematic. Now, that's about process, but it can also be out, about outcome as well in some sense. But that does uh, describe it well, which is it's about process more than it is about outcome that I think determines justice. Right. So then justice is really tied to the ability of everyone to participate equally in the decision-making process and have like input into what we collective, collectively do. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. And it's, it's, um, it's painful for me, um, right now where I feel that, uh, the country as a whole is being led by someone who I uh, couldn't, uh, disagree with more. Um, so it's, um, it, it's a painful con kind of conception of justice. Um, though I would argue that some aspects of the current administration, um, go contrary to politics as justice. Okay, so yeah, so so in your paper, you suggest that we might have concerns about certain kinds of tax exempt organizations, you know, to the especially to the extent that we accept the kind of process oriented theory of justice you you're talking about here. But before we talk about what the problems might be, I wonder if you could help listeners who might not be that familiar with the structure of tax exempt organizations, like understand what some of these organizations are in, in particular 501c4 is like, what exactly is a 501c4? Yeah. So, um, I think I'll go even uh, back a bit more. Um, so we have for-profit organizations and most people are very familiar with them and deal with them every day. Uh, we have government and then we have nonprofit entities. And most people deal with nonprofit entities on a regular basis too, their church or their school, um, hospital. Um, and nonprofit entities don't have any owners. Um, they're not able to distribute income to uh, some individual who has a, is a shareholder or member of this organization in some fashion that has rights to the earnings from this thing. Um, there are many different types of nonprofit organizations. The most numerous and the ones that perhaps have the most money um, would be charitable organizations. Um, but there are lots of others, including labor unions and business leagues. But the ones I'm talking about this in, in this paper are referred to as social welfare organizations. Um, and um, they, they, they both exist in a state level sense. Um, but they more exist in name in a tax exemption sense. Um, at a state level, um, we often think of um, dividing nonprofit organizations into those that are public benefit organizations and those that are mutual benefit. 
the ones I was mentioning, like a labor union um, or a business league, those are mutual benefit. The members are part of this thing. It's a nonprofit entity, so it's not distributing in its earnings. Um, but it works for the benefit of the members. A public benefit organization, on the other hand, um, is uh, shaped to benefit a broader community. Um, and charitable organizations most neatly fit into that category. Um, social welfare organizations are under 501c4 of the Internal Revenue Code, and it allows the, the, these particular organizations to be exempted from tax as long as they, quote, promote social welfare. Um, what are examples of the types of organizations that might promote social welfare? Well, they, they, things like um, Planned Parenthood, um, other organizations, uh, the, the NRA has a C4, the, the NAACP has a C4, ACLU happens to be a C4. Organizations that happen to be not completely charitable, such that they can qualify under C3, but they're kind of charitable and they're in the nature of a public benefit organization. In other words, they're benefiting, benefiting a broader community will often qualify into the social welfare category. Um, additionally, into this category falls some insurance companies, so some um, uh, HMO-oriented organizations, or um, there's a Delta Dental that's still out there. In other words, many of your audience might, be a, might have insurance through Delta Dental. They happen to be organized as a C4, um, presumably because they... Um, Benefit, they, they further a social welfare purpose, but they're not good enough to be charitable. So they, they fit into that place too. Um, others that qualify here are rotary organizations. There are some kids sports clubs that qualify here. It's kind of a mishmash. Sometimes the IRS is referred to this as the trash bin of nonprofits that were pretty good, but not good enough to be charitable. So maybe you could talk a, a little bit more about the kind of the relationship between the purposes of a charitable organization that's tax exempt under 501c3 as compared as compared to a social welfare organization sure. that's tax exempt under under C4. Like what would make an organization charitable as opposed to sort of a social welfare organization, like almost charitable, but not quite. And sort of what are the differences in terms of how those organizations are, those kinds of organizations are treated uh, in a regulatory sense? Yeah, no, good question. I think that that helps. Um, and maybe it would be helpful to start with how they're treated in a regulatory sense. If you can get your organization qualified as a charitable organization, it opens up the possibility of you accepting charitable contributions that uh, your, your donors can deduct. If you're a 501c4 um, social welfare organization, instead, no one can deduct the contribution. So if you make a contribution to the NAACP as its C4 outfit or even the NRA as a C4, there's no deduction um, associated as a charitable contribution deduction. Um, additionally, um, 501c3 organizations might be able to issue um, tax-exempt, tax-free bonds, which is another benefit to it. And there, there's many other benefits that sort of come with being a C3. Uh, private foundations are more likely to make donations, make grants to you uh, if you're a C3 as opposed to a C4. But you're still nonprofit if you're C4, and you're still tax-exempt if you're C4. So the benefit of being a C4, even if you can't be a C3, is um, any income that you earn that's associated with fulfilling your purpose 
NRA collects members dues um, and maybe has profit associated with them. You don't have to pay tax on that. Additionally, if you maintain some sort of endowment, um, you've got a $100 million endowment and it's earning a return, you don't have to pay tax on that either. So there, there's some real benefits to it. Um, why do some organizations get that greater benefit? It might be a way of thinking through this question. Um, well, charitable organizations are organized for, quote, charitable purposes. Um, and maybe the best way is to think about it in a, a homeowners association sense. Um, homeowners associations that are open to the public, that allow parking, maybe allow you to you know, swim in the pool, even if you're not a member, allow you, don't provide anything particularly to the members of the homeowners association, but are generally operated in this very sort of public sense. They're not good enough to be a C3 charitable organization because they're not doing anything um, that really promotes charitable purposes in some sense. But they're kind of promoting this conception of social welfare um, that the IRS at least has accepted as a, as a legitimate social welfare purpose. One real challenge here um, is that theoretically, if you look in the regulations um, defining what a charitable purpose is, it includes the promotion of social welfare. So there, there's kind of some incoherency there. Um, but basically, I think what's driven the choice between the two is an organization that you're like, oh, that's pretty good, but it's just not good enough. I mean, that, that's why I use those terms. Um, so some things that get kicked out of charitable nature, like the NRA, um, the NAACP made a choice that they were better off, better served in C4, is that C3s are prohibited from intervening in an, in an election. Um, C3s have significant limitations on their ability to lobby. C4s don't. Um, well, C4s can intervene in an election. They just can't have that as their primary purpose. C4s can lobby. Um, they can lobby as much as they want effectively. Um, so and does that uh, give you enough? I mean, yeah, to- yeah. I mean, one thing I thought was really interesting in the paper was how you pointed to kind of both C3 and C4 are kind of vague in terms of how they define the organizations that fit within that basket. But when it comes to C3s, we kind of have this kind of common law history of what we conceptualize as charitable. And and it doesn't seem like we have that kind of kind of external or sort of social context for understanding C4s. Like, why is that? Where did C4 come from? And sort of how was it initially conceptualized? And like, how do we get where we are today? I think that's a great question. I think it has to do partly with why C4 is such a mishmash in the problem, um, definitionally, um, and a problem regulatorily. Um, So um, C3 um, law that has been pulled into the tax code is really anchored in charitable trust law. Um, and that goes at least back to the uh, early 1600 with the, it's the statute of Elizabethan, uh, I forget the name of it, but it, uh, effectively they come up with this notion of charitable trust, but it, it's anchored in, in deeper history, which is, um, but in common law, at least, 
um, if you formed a trust for charitable purposes, um, you could avoid the rule against perpetuity. So you could um, lock uh, assets up to provide for a certain thing, um, which otherwise you, you couldn't in this particular trust entity. And a huge body of common law, um, at least within the common law tradition, was developed up around that notion. Um, and it, so you have the, uh, you know, the statement of trusts and in it, you can find lots of stuff about what is a quote charitable purpose. And that really did get adopted into the regulations, at least of the tax code. And there's good evidence, at least that Congress, when it had adopted, um, 501c3 in 1913 in the income tax code and really in 1909 and uh, very much so even when we had an earlier income tax in the Civil War, the same kind of conceptions were adopted. Um, but in 19, I forget if it's 1909 or 1913, where um, there is a question about whether these organizations can qualify or not, ones that are not necessarily charitable, but are carrying out some sort of um, civil purpose, civic purpose. Um, the, um, I think it's the, the, the Chamber of Commerce came in and argued, um, hey, you really ought to include these other groups that are, are promoting economics, promoting good things in our society that aren't necessarily charitable, but are still entitled to the same sort of idea. And so in a sense, Somewhat out of whole cloth, this concept of the promotion of social welfare gets adopted into C4. Now, there's really not much in the way of legislative history to give us any idea of what any of that means. And so effectively, the IRS, um, the Treasury Department um, have developed regulations, not extensively. And then you've had a series of court cases over a period of time that have given um, birth to this notion of social welfare. Um, but it's still relatively primitive, I guess, um, as compared to that of charitable purpose. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, for sure. For sure. So so just to clarify, uh, a C4 then has the benefit of being tax exempt, right? And it also has the benefit of being able to engage in a significant amount of political speech. Are there other benefits associated with C4 status uh, that would make it attractive to people who want to engage in political activity? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, <laughs> very much so. I mean, and this, this is uh, sort of the, the, the origin, the origination of uh, the title, which is dark democracy. Um, the um, donations to a C4 um, don't have to be disclosed to the public. Um, and uh, they also don't have to be disclosed to the um, Federal Election Commission either. Um, so it's this space where electoral activity can be taken place um, in the quote, dark. Um, and depending on your conceptions of democracy and justice, and or even if you just want to go very simple political campaign finance and its relationship to our uh, the justice of our, our political system, you might be troubled by that aspect. Um, campaign finance um, attempts to give sunlight to those who are influencing our political system so that we can know um, 
sort of the, the reason somebody might be promoting something and give it a certain amount of credibility based on from whom it is coming. Um, and so C4s um, are, and we need to bring one more category in here to have the conversation really, which is that political organizations happen to be tax exempt too in their own way under section 527 of the code. Any political party, political campaign, et cetera, it, it is essentially organized under 527. Um, some of those 527s happen to have disclosure obligations under 527 of the code. Others have their obligation under the campaign finance. It's a really complex system um, and hard to understand unless you understand both tax and campaign finance very well. Um, but uh, C4s skirt outside that 527 system that got established a number of years back and um, don't have to disclose their donors. Uh, C6s don't have to disclose their owner donors either. But again, this is where we get the dark democracy kind of conception because they're able to um, influence our politics uh, without us being aware of who is the person that's encouraging them to uh, take particular position. So, so I understand that C4s are pretty popular with at least certain classes of people and organizations engaging in political speech. And like, ironically, the Citizens United, that was a subject of the kind of notorious Supreme Court case was actually uh, a C4 organization. Yep. What what kind of quantities of, of money are we talking about here? Like how many organizations are formed in this way? And what kinds of expenditures uh, to the best that we know i guess are are they making yeah i mean actually you know a c4 um as far as it goes in 2016 there were about 80,000 of these organizations registered in that in that range um and as an aggregate they earned about 86 billion in revenue and if i throw these numbers out within a tax audience um like that's just not that much, and it's not. Um, they're they're relatively small. Um, the charitable sector is much bigger. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but you're talking more in the nature of uh, a trillion or up to maybe two trillion of money that's flowing through these. So this is a comparative matter. It's really small. One of the odd things about politics generally is that um, th there's a really small amount of money that gets spent on politics and sort of an everlasting question is why is such little amount spent on it when so much seems to be at stake in terms of potential benefits from, from a return. Um, and I'll note one more thing regarding C4s. Many people are really super worried about uh, this dark money within the C4 context. And I told you there were 80 something thousand organizations and maybe 86 billion in revenue in 2016. Um, but um, only about 12% of the um, C4 um, population seems to be associated with this, quote, dark money um, group. It seems to be growing from evidence we can see. But as of yet, it's not a huge mass of money that's happening in this space. Mm. 
Well, so in the in the paper, you're concerned about the implications for the democratic process of extending tax exemption to some or all C4 organizations. What do you see as being the problem from that perspective? Like what 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 what's the kind of the function of extending tax exemption under these circumstances? And why might we be concerned about that? Yeah. Um, so. I think this this brings us back to sort of this notion of democracy as justice, um, and it, it it really becomes important to describe why that has a relationship to this. Um, so, in my conception of democracy as justice, I think it's important that um, the state doesn't work to um, essentially increase the voice of some individuals and decrease those of others in our political decision-making. Um, and, and I've written about this before, but in sort of my labor union paper and a paper on business leaders. Um, this one presents a more difficult challenge for me um, because uh, in the business league case and the labor union case, I could say those organizations are primarily interest groups and the money is benefiting them pretty closely aligned with sort of their sort of political interests. In the social welfare case, it's a smaller group um, that are engaged in strict interest group political activity um, and another group that's engaged in just sort of carrying out certain political activities in a private sense. So coming back to this question, though, um, if we're going to try and maximize political voice, and so if we just for the moment move and just think about those organizations that are influencing our democracy, the dark democracy groups, um, we give tax exemption to groups um, in, and arbitrary is not really the way to say it, but in a sense it is, it's an arbitrary process whereby those individuals who are aware of the ability to get tax exemption and organize themselves in this way. Um, those individuals that have the money and the capacity to use these institutions are the ones who have the access to this benefit. In effect, through the tax code, even though we seem to have designed a neutral means of giving out this benefit, anybody who wants it can get it. The reality is it's going to go to individuals who already have the capability to do these types of um, activities, such as generate information about important public policy matters um, and will further their interests in a particular way. And so additionally, it tends to give a greater benefit to those who are able to generate income within that system because they're being exempted from the income tax from the corporate income tax, which is, uh, I believe 21% right now after the tax act of 2017. Um, so effectively we give a 21% benefit to groups that earn income and that want to further their message um, within this system. It's completely arbitrary. Um, if you're thinking about politics as justice, there's no problem with groups furthering their voice, but I do have a problem with the state um, arbitrarily using a market mechanism to further the voice of some institutions. And in effect, 
decrease the voice of others. So mm. I think it's done exactly contrary to the way we would think of justice. Um, so to me, um, we would be much better off, particularly with those groups that are engaged in partisan politics, simply eliminating that and having them pay the same tax share everybody else does on the voice that they want to bring forward. A critical factor here is you're not able to deduct um, contributions for politics or for lobbying. <laughs> the C4 effectively gives people the ability to put appreciated assets into a C4, um, use that for carrying out their political activity and effectively get a deduction through that system. Mm. Would it be fair to say that like one difference between C3s and C4s that might kind of suggest the need for differential tax treatment is that a C3 is like formally obligated to work on behalf of third parties and kind of broad kind of social objectives or goals, whereas a C4 has to engage in social welfare activities, but it could be social welfare that just so happens to coincide with the private interests of the people who are donating to the organization. So that's, I mean, it's an interesting question because that's kind of where I have to think about where I take this next is as, as I describe this, um, where does it go? What does it, what's its application to C3s? Am I actually arguing that there's really no reason for any, um, nonprofit to be given tax exemption? And I'm strongly inclined to think in that way. Um, but uh, I, I would actually, one, quibble with the idea that a C3 has to necessarily think about a third party. There's plenty of C3s that I don't think think about a third party at all. In fact, um, we've seen many um, sort of partisan-related interest group-like organizations form within the C3 context and advocate for a particular idea, and they're able to exist in that space just fine as long as they don't go out and um, specifically lobby too much or advocate for a particular candidate. So I think the primary thing, at least within the notion of education and an advocacy sense, is that um, uh, there is a limitation within the C3 space, specifically limiting your ability to intervene in a campaign and specifically limiting your ability to lobby. Um, the the difficulty with both is that there is a certain group of people who are defining um, what the interests are of this particular organization. And in many instances, they're carrying out effectively collective action decisions. And it's hard to distinguish between collective action decisions, which um, the democracy ought to be making a choice about. Um, so maybe within the C3 context, you might think about um, a hospital. Um, is it just the people who run the hospital that ought to have a decision in terms of what the hospital is going to do? Or is there some larger group um, within the community, say here in Pittsburgh, UPMC, there's been lots of battles over that. Is there some larger group that ought to be, in a sense, a citizen's board on that hospital's board? So that there's a larger voice there. Um, I think I've run a little bit uh, far from what you're saying, but I, I think it's really important um, to what I'm doing uh, that, in a sense, 
I think of all nonprofits as not being um, democratic in the larger sense. They may operate democratically within their organizations, um, but they are creating their own private solutions. Mm. Well, so returning to C4s, um, you know, do you think that the sort of removal or kind of the the sort of elimination of the tax exemption that you suggest might be appropriate is something that ought to apply to all C4 organizations or or only to some subset of them? Yeah, so I, I think it's, it's clear um, that the partisan organizations probably ought to at least bear um, tax on their investment income. Um, I don't know that that makes an enormous difference in terms of how they operate and sort of the money, but I think it's an important aspect of being just. Um, that they don't get that benefit and that opportunity. Um, there are other types of organizations, though, that exist within C4. One of them is there's um, some that are carrying out health insurance operations. Um, and those, I think, are carrying out a collective action function. Um, they're providing for the larger group access to health care, in effect, um, that I don't think a private organization or association ought to have the right to do unless we make it more democratically oriented. Um, so I would be inclined to take away the exemption from those organizations as well. Um, there are a lot of smaller organizations that get small contributions that probably rest easily within the C4 space and are probably not too troublesome as a democratic matter. Um, things like Rotary Club, Kiwanis, and other such types of organizations. There are kids' sports organizations. Um, it's probably administratively convenient to keep these organizations into these spaces. Um, one thing that I haven't talked about yet is that one of the problems with the C4 space is that the IRS is having to make a decision in effect regarding collective action choices that the population from a democratic perspective ought to be making. They're making a determination whether these C4s are legitimate or not. Um, and that puts them into a difficult space, which is in a justice sense, people might see it as problematic when the IRS either denies or grants um, exemption. And so it ends up um, clouding um, the justice of the IRS as an organization that needs to remain neutral in some sense um, by having the IRS enter into that decision. Um, whether they could do it with respect to a Kiwanis organization or maybe even with respect to a healthcare organization, um, maybe that's okay. But I think Congress or the IRS and Treasury ought to spend a lot more time giving great definition to what these groups look like so that there's clarity in a democratic sense about what we think is good. I think it's still problematic for them, um, but it's it, it could alleviate some of my concerns regarding the IRS um, having to be tied to sort of a political collective act action decision making, telling us, the people, whether something is good or not. So, Phil, in, in closing, you've, I think, given a lot of 
uh, compelling reasons why from a sort of process oriented view of political justice, we ought to be concerned specifically about C4s and the way they're treated for tax purposes. How would you think someone who looked at this question from more of an outcomes oriented view would uh, uh, look at the problem? And are, are there reasons you give in your paper or reasons that you think ought to be compelling to someone looking through more of an outcomes oriented lens? Yeah, I think you can um, look at it from an outcome uh, lens. And I think when you look at it from an outcome lens, um, you'd probably find that um, the political organizations are problematic as well. Um, so um, effectively, I, I think of the outcome lens as um, a question of whether um, the market is providing um, these services or goods at an optimal level um, and simply allowing every organization that wants to promote, quote, social welfare and leaving that highly undefined um, leads to organizations that already have the capacity to provide those services and probably are already providing those services into the market um, a greater voice. And in effect, you end up with um, an inefficient um, system of uh, interest groups um, operating. You're, in a sense, um, reinforcing, if you will, um, the already skewed political spectrum. Um, so organizations that are getting a lot of money um, to further a particular position, maybe the NRA, although the NRA is having its own challenges now, um, but any other type of um, major uh, group that has a major industry behind it uh, can put money into that thing already and will do that. And so I think from an outcomes perspective, you should come to the same conclusion that I do um, regarding the political organizations, that there's no real reason to give them tax exemption in the first place because it um, skews efficiency, if you will. Um, we might be able to find that there is reason um, to provide health care in a tax-exempt sense. Um, and in fact, Congress and the Affordable Care Act um, moved to do that and created the 501c29s. Um, what was nice in that effort of uh, Obamacare was that there were great definitions as to what one of these organizations would be, um, defining the amount of uh, uh, money that could be going to administrative costs and what type of insurance this should look like. And so as a political matter, um, we as a country have very much decided what this organization should look like. Um, I think it's possible that we could politically decide that these were an efficient way of getting things done and allow these insurance organizations to, at the same time, um, more efficiently operate within the market. So I think it's possible to have sort of a Delta Dental that exists, but I think there's a lot more work we need to do on the front end defining what that organization looks like from an understanding of what um, efficient markets would look like for insurance. Um, with respect to the sort of other groups, those clubs and, uh, um, you know, sports clubs for kids, um, my guess is, you know, if there were a simple way of those groups sort of complying with the tax code um, and having to file a limited tax return um, if they are smaller in nature and largely democratic and community-based. Um, 
I think an efficiency-based analysis would find that makes good sense too, um, to not trouble these organizations too much with this stuff and allow these types of clubs to form at a low level. Once they start getting large, though, now you start getting into diff- different issues. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, Phil, thanks so much. This has been really illuminating. Um, and, you know, I, as I said, I think it's a really timely set of observations as we head into, you know, yet another big political season. And it seems like these organizations are, you know, playing an increasingly important role for better or for worse. They absolutely do. So thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss it. It helps me in thinking through these issues. Yes, Jimmy, Jimmy Carter, a 